Before we jump into the app, quick reminder that nothing on Bell Curve is financial advice. Everything is just a meme. Hope you guys enjoy. When people are like, why didn't Sam just walk away from Alameda and let it die? I think it's because, A, you couldn't separate the finances. Like, we'll get into that. Like, the Enron guy was basically like, this is the worst instance of, of financial mismanagement I've seen my whole career. And that guy went through Enron. So he couldn't separate, Sam knew he couldn't separate the finances in time, but also it seems like these businesses kind of fed on each other. Like Alameda might've only been a profitable trading shop because of the relationship with FTX. FTX might've only had the volumes and justified the valuation because Alameda was trading on it. I don't think you could just rip one out. I think when you rip one out, they both fail. All right, everyone, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Avalanche. They're the layer one blockchain that is fast, stable, and scalable. You're going to be hearing all about them later in the show. For now, let's get into it. All right, everyone, welcome back to another roundup on Bell Curve. You're joined by Michaels 1 and 2, Yano and Vance. Fellas, it's been a week. It's been a week. It's been a week. It's been a lifetime. Yeah. What are we... Um... Feels like... Vance, I love the pullover. Talk about? Great pullover. We got rugged by Vance. We got rugged. 30 seconds. <laughs> oh, Yes! <laughs> <laughs> In foil that's yeah that's, that's amazing that's amazing all right for those of you following along i didn't have time to make the antenna but i there's no radio waves getting through this all right bro i'm gonna you know i'm just gonna tee you up vance i'm just just take it because you know i gotta give you credit on all this alameda stuff you were loud and early uh you know calling a lot of these guys out and calling calling bullshit on this um there was a there was a big i mean there are two things that i want to continue to deconstruct on this whole ongoing ftx alameda saga I'd love, I'd love to just get everyone's take basically on the call about like what really went on on Alameda. Like how did we wind up with this $15 billion hole? And again, I just want to like, there are some facts that we're going to be talking about and then we're going to kind of wade into the realm of speculation on like just how this all might've happened. Um, and I think a lot of it was based on kind of this myth that got built up, uh, you know, project like kind of projecting Alameda as these like arbitrageurs, printing money, smartest guys in the room, couldn't be wrong. And I think that's starting to like kind of come undone. So uh, either Michael or Vance, maybe Vance, because you got the, the tinfoil hat uh, literally on your, on your head and you're protected from the radio waves. Can you give us a breakdown of like, how did these guys like talk about Alameda in the beginning? What was it really like when they were soliciting funds? Like, what's your take on, on how this all sort of unwound? I mean, how, how it built up was in, in our position, probably right from the start, you know, and Sam even admitted it in that last Vox interview he gave where FTX didn't have a separate bank account with Alameda. Everything just got wired to Alameda. And so, you know, like the idea that, you know, they created this backdoor because this problem happened last summer and this is only something that's been going on for three months. I think it's a very charitable interpretation of the situation. I think the base case is that it was extending back much further, potentially to the start of, of kind of both entities being commingled. Um, but you know you can spend 15 billion pretty quickly. You know you support the price of a few tokens. You know that's a few billion. You have all these celebrity endorsements, all these advertisements. You know that that's another billion. You're buying properties on the island. You know you're buying houses, 200 million of property. Um, these things go pretty quickly. And I think the base case is probably this was you know rotten from the start. Uh, and like, you'd have to convince me that this only came about because of Luna and Three Arrows. It just doesn't seem to be the case. And so where did the money go? 
probably into a mixture of bad trades supporting native tokens of Solana that they use for collateral and just outright embezzlement or you know spending on FTX so stuff. I, I actually don't think that it's necessarily the. Um, I, well, I think the smoking gun here, I, I actually think FTX probably had its own bank account. And the way that Sam was talking about it, he was more referring to, like, the early days at FTX when you had commingling of, like, FTX spinning out of Alameda. So, like, maybe slight benefit of the doubt there. Because um, you, can't, you, you can't have, you know, a, an, an exchange that doesn't have its own bank account in the first place. But I think the, the smoking gun for Sam, frankly, is what the Wall Street Journal reported last weekend, where it became clear that, there was actually a, a, a backdoor into the accounting system, you know, a, so, a, a bespoke system, uh, software system that allowed for Alameda or FTX to lend assets to counterparties without actually changing the financials that would get around auditor controls, would get around, would, would not let anybody else at FTX actually know this. The fact that that was created in the first place, I mean, it, people have gotten charged with were pretty terrible crimes for much less. Um, and so the, the creation of that uh, to knowingly defraud, um, you know, either your counterparties, your, your investors, or, uh, you know, customers in this case, um, I, I think is that ultimately that will be the smoking gun here. Mm. Um, l- let's kind of take this back to, to the beginning here. There's a great um, sort of breakdown uh, as, as, as classic in crypto by someone named Milky Eggs. Uh, Milky Eggs gave us the goods here. Uh, but, you know, there's a piece, and we'll link to it in the show notes, called What Happened at Alameda? This this is basically, uh, you know, this was put together in response to the New York Times piece that, frankly, we should talk about, uh, you know, which is definitely gave pretty charitable treatment to someone that's in Sam's position, I would say. But basically, they kind of tried to piece together kind of the history of Alameda and how things might have gone wrong. So there are some kind of facts that are laid out in the beginning and then, you know, we kind of wade, wade into the speculation as everyone tries to, like, fit a narrative on just, like, how this could have gone so badly, right? Um, and I, I think what's worth maybe talking about is, at least, like, my perception of Alameda pre-two weeks ago was that they were kind of these, like, arbitrageur, smartest guys in the room. And you can, I think you can trace back that perception to these interviews that Sam would give that probably many of you in the space have heard which is, oh, yeah, we made our money initially by closing down the kimchi premium, right? Or the premium that existed in between Bitcoin that traded on U.S. domiciled exchanges versus Asian domiciled exchanges. They, it looks like they didn't get the, the South Korean one, but there was a premium in between Japanese uh, Bitcoin exchanges like Bitflyer, et cetera, and like Coinbase. And you know, he kind of told this story in a way that made it seem like they made a whole bunch of money closing down those spreads. And they sort of let you assume that that's what they were doing to continue to make their money. But obviously that isn't really what happened, right? And, and like going through this, what, what it, it, it kind of, uh, you know, lays out this narrative or a potential thought process for what might have happened where maybe initially they were doing that and they made some money by doing that. But then it posits that whatever ed- edge they had in the beginning started to get um, crowded out as more capital, more sophisticated capital kind of came into the space. And once they weren't able to make as much money just making markets uh, and providing, you know, uh, liquidity, they started to basically just punt on longs. And they reference a couple of like, they reference a couple of tweets from like that I remember actually from Trabuco, uh, you know, a couple of years ago when he was basically describing the strategy of being long Doge whenever Elon would tweet, uh, and, and I was kind of like. <laughs> 
yeah, he did do that. <laughs> like, he did do that. And I don't know. I wanted to get your guys' take because I kind of think it comes full circle with this podcast and bell curve because there's, like, the guy on the left of the bell curve and then there's the guy on the right. And I would posit to you that maybe the guy on the right doesn't exist. And it's been a bunch of left bell curve guys all We're along. All on the left. The same yeah. guy. I, 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 that's for sure. I think that's the right take. I think that's the right take, the milky eggs. Um, by the way, great, great blog name. Got to put milk in the eggs. Yeah, um, makes them fluffy. Got, got it. Much fluffier. Um, I, I think that's the right take. My, like, I, it, it does seem like Alameda basically started as a bunch of like, people from Jane Street and like a bunch of traders who thought that they could make some money. They made some money, maybe five, 10, 15 million on an arbitrage play. They built a successful market making firm. I mean, the numbers were there. Like I remember seeing the BitMEX leaderboard. They were consistently at the top of the BitMEX leaderboard. Like it's not like they weren't making money, but at the end of the day, a market making firm can only scale as large as like a market neutral firm can only scale as large as the industry scales. Right. And so I think what ended up happening is they had this successful market making firm um, in like 2018, 2019, making a bunch of money. Then the market turns, COVID happens, March, 2020 market starts to go long when you are a market neutral firm and you see all your, these like people who you think are dumber than you making a boatload of money. Well, then you start just taking these, just punting on these like levered long plays. And I think that's where, that's like the first thing that I think where, where, where shit really started to hit the fan is when they moved from a market neutral firm to a, to just this like degen levered long retail portfolio. I mean, yep. one, one thing to also note here is just like there is a, there is a scale difference where if you're a market making firm and you're actually market neutral, making markets, going off and finding arbitrage spreads, that only scales to a certain extent to the point where you're not able to you know, punt a million dollars through those trades. Maybe you were able to do that with 10,000 or 100,000, but like the second you increase by an order of magnitude scale, which their balance sheet obviously did, your you know absolute return market neutral trading strategies just don't work at the same level. And so you can't continue that, that path. I think there is an element here of just like them getting caught up in themselves, getting too big to be able to continue with the strategy that they started with in 2018. And in 2020, you had DeFi summer, and why not just go off and yield farm with a uh, you know, balance sheet of, of stable coins? Um, so it, it's kind of no surprise that like, they shifted strategies, but you know, there, there is an element of like, they just weren't able to continue their strategy because they had too much capital. Can you address actually that exact, like I've heard, I think I've heard you guys say this, but you were also pretty early in like DeFi and yield farms. And you can actually go back and listen to some of the SPF interviews where he was like, best way to think of us is we provide liquidity. We close down spreads like in exchanges and different regulatory uh, jurisdictions. And then in weirder spaces like DeFi, right? Like how they, you know, the implication being we basically farmed and then dumped like, and took billions of dollars out of these yield farms. Like, you guys were kind of there. Like, how possible was that really to do in size? Uh, well, impossible. You could have a couple things break your way and have, like, and make, like, nine figures on, on something. But, like, pretty much impossible. I, I think what would be worth doing is just going over, like, what do quantitative firms like Alameda do as, like, a set of strategies? And, and like, what is their capacity and, and what's the potential payoff? So arbitrage you know, pretty small, it, it, that's like a small firm's game. 
like jump is not really doing that stuff like the most sophisticated ones like they tend to do things called signals trading which we'll get into but like the pure arbitrage like you know it's trading on exchange x and it's different price on exchange y that's both a very small arb and it's also like been mostly taken out since all of these more sophisticated firms have come in so like that's not really something that we see firms do and it always seems suspicious that sbf had this like theoretical arb which made all of his money like those facts never tied so that's like one strategy people run like arbitraging the next one is just vanilla market making. What is what is market making like uh, conceptually? So the mechanical uh, transaction that happens is, you know, a token project or, you know, somebody else wants to get their asset market made. They will give the market makers, Alameda, you know, Jump, whatever, a loan of these tokens for free with an option for them to buy these tokens at a very cheap price. So if it moves against them, they can collateralize and, and hedge it out. But if it goes up in value, they can buy it and, and seek some profit from it. So that's like the second well, thing that well, they'll do. One quick note on that. So the, it's also important to note the different order types and order uh, and exchange types that you're talking about. A centralized limit order book is the only way that you can actually be a traditional market maker. Because what you're effectively doing is you're setting bids beneath wherever the market clearing price is. And you're setting ask uh, orders above. And basically what you're trying to do is provide this spread where you're trying to enable more liquidity by being a constant provider of orders that go into the centralized limit order book. But as we know with AMMs or a constant, uh, constant function market making uh, concept, you just can't do that, right? The, the function itself is what determines the market clearing price. And so it's very different and it can only work on centralized exchanges. And this is kind of the whole pitch that you had with Alameda plus FTX is that FTX had the deepest liquidity because Alameda was the traditional market maker behind FTX, making all of these esoteric markets in a centralized way. So just one point of clarification. So, so arbitrage, not that profitable, small market making, profitable, but it's like a very manual business. This isn't like, you know, you're going to blow somebody's lights out with like how intellectually stimulating this is. It's like, it's mostly a transactional relationship and you set the bids and asks within a range and, and that's how you make markets. It's not actually that hard. But it's not that profitable either, unless you hit like a token that goes up a thousand X, you redeem the option, you make a ton of money, whatever. So the third stuff that we see people do is, is signals trading. This is the most difficult thing to do. It's the most profitable thing to do. You can make a billion dollars doing this if you have the right team. It only takes, you know, five or ten people. Um, but like basically nobody in this industry can do it. Uh, we've seen a couple of people successful, but not over a long period of time. But like that's like the super quant side of the world. And like I don't think Alameda was actually doing that. Like, I don't think that was one of the strategies that they had. It was more like, you know, market making, kind of like dumb money, trying to make money on that, yield farming, and then just going long stuff. Like, Alameda was never researching much. It was always like a very manual trading operation in our view that like wasn't that sophisticated. Yeah. Now, I want to like start to, you, we kind of started to get into this, but, or Michael, you mentioned this, like the value prop of like the relationship between FTX and Alameda. Because I think that's really important. And people are like, why didn't he just bail on Alameda, right, and save FTX. And I actually have a theory about that, but I want to get your guys' take as well. So exchanges, when they're getting started, have this thing called the cold start problem, right, which is basically the value of the exchange is you need to have deep liquidity so you, that spread that you guys were talking about can be as thin as possible so that people want to trade. More liquidity begets thinner uh, spreads, so, like, liquidity begets liquidity, and that's how you're supposed to get started. The problem is, like, how do you get it in the beginning? So... Alameda had this, uh, you know, they, they sort of raised capital. They raised like debt capital. And actually this is now getting passed around as well. Like allegedly, right. There were 
raising at 15% return, no risk, which is itself kind of like a junior move, right? It did raise some red flags back in the day, I think. Um, but whatever, however, they, they, they did it. They successfully raised basically debt capital and they started trading basically way, like punching way above their weight class in terms of trading and liquidity. Um, but it seems like Sam kind of had other plans and either because he wanted to and saw more opportunity or because he thought he needed to, he basically saw put an exchange, a derivatives exchange. And this accomplished two things. One, it allows him to solve the cold start problem on the exchange side of things because, boom, he had a built-in market maker that was already punching above its weight class from day one. And B, it provided a way for Alameda, the firm, to extract profits because what has come, what everyone has basically long suspected and has now been officially confirmed is that Alameda had both priority access to uh, and they could trade in front of other people that were trading on the exchange, but they also were the liquidation agent. For the exchange. And this is, I think, a really important thing to point out. So when derivative exchanges, uh, when margin positions are liquidated, right, um, someone has to sell that off. So it's a po- in, when market times are good, it's a really good way to make profits, right? Because you basically take the collateral, sell it, and you get some small percentage of that. It should be really easy. But when the market is moving very fast, it's much harder to warehouse risk, right? So like, if you take that collateral and then you own it and suddenly you own the risk, you can't flip it in time to basically make the small spread that you were allowed as a market maker before. So this is all setting up for like what might have happened here. Uh, and it looks like looks like these guys basically got in trouble around Luna, like three arrow, the collapse of Three Arrows and Luna, same time as everyone else. And it looks like there was like a whole bunch of things that happened all at the same time, which is when Three Arrows blew out, there was an enormous amount of liquidations that happened on FTX, the exchange. So a big profit-making machine for Alameda in good times, when they get to liquidate that collateral and sell it and keep some of the profits, they got screwed on because it looks like they didn't have as good of technology as they kind of advertised. They basically had to warehouse a bunch of bad debt, and then they took an enormous L on that. At the same time, all the loans that they had given out to centralized, the centralized lenders were getting called in. Um, and so that kind of explains why they went in and bailed out all of these lenders, which had loans that were collateralized with FTT. Um, so like when people are like, why didn't Sam just walk away from Alameda and let it die? I think it's because a, you couldn't separate the finances. Like we'll get into that. Like the Enron guy was basically like, this is the worst instance of of financial mismanagement i've seen my whole career and that guy went through enron so he couldn't separate sam knew he couldn't separate the finances in time but also it seems like these businesses kind of fed on each other like alameda might have only been a profitable trading shop because of the relationship with ftx ftx might have only had the volumes and justified the valuation because alameda was trading on it i don't think you could just rip one out i think when you rip one out they both I think that's I think that second one is the, is the more important one. So I think if you looked at actually FTX's clients, you, they only got the retail clients at the very end of FTX. Like they so it really FTX was this exchange with a very small amount of clients. Um, and like if you look at if you actually look at their trading volume, someone printed I forget some Anon account. It was like forty or fifty percent of their volume. Uh, Alameda was just was one side of the trade. So basically, what FTX was doing, they would quote these uh there sometimes they would price off market even by a fraction of a basis point 
that would that drove institutions to to then go use FTX uh, because even like very small BIPs they could pick that off all day. So institutions would go use FTX. Now FTX would show these large institutional volumes. They could use those volumes to secure credit lines um, and fee benefits at exchanges, which could then allow them to price differently than others. So now FTX basically had the ability to present these super high value, uh, super high volumes. So if you actually look at it in that light, FTX was just this like loss-making prop shop uh, that wrote off losses as a way to drive volumes, which then they could go take to Sequoia and to all these other VCs. And the VCs would mistakenly see those as like acquisition cost of customers. Um, and, and, and they painted this pretty picture of like, it was essentially that v FTX was like a prop shop trying to secure the valuation of a of a large fintech company. So the, I actually think it, so. It's definitely that. I think it actually goes a lot deeper than that, which is the the crux of this whole thing comes down to FTT and SRM. Yeah. And the yeah. the the reason why uh, it comes down to that is because FTT, which you know is one of the major balance sheet items that was rumored to be on the Alameda balance sheet in, in June, 20, uh, June of this year. Um, <clears throat> remember, FTT is propped up by 25% of the weekly profits of FTX, right? And so 25% goes to FTT burn, which increases the value of FTT, but also enables this, um, and you know, we, we looked at Serum, uh, we, we also looked at FTT bit way back in the day, passed on both for a number of reasons, Serum was a lot kind of sketchier, um, but you know, basically they had this model where it was a seven-year distribution, which is probably about twice as long as we would see from any other protocol token. Um, <clears throat> they also had insiders owning forty percent of it, which meant, and it was not very very well described as to like who was owning it, how it was going to be owned. But imagine you have this really really low float token that you just created out of thin air, where you own forty percent of it, and every you have this machine that enables you to hyperinflate the value of this asset. What you can then do is you can then go say, I have all this locked FTT. I'm gonna post it as collateral so that we can borrow dollars against that. And we can borrow billions of assets against that propped up asset, you know, strong assets being borrowed against inflated assets. And I think that's kind of where this whole like multi-billion dollar balance sheet came from in the first place. Like that, that is where this whole thing got started. I, I think FTX was a mechanism of propping this whole thing up, but it was definitely the FTT token. And then more recently, the SRM token in the same mechanism that really, I, I think are the, the driving forces behind all of this. The other thing that, you know, like we knew, but probably the VCs who, who didn't, uh, who did this deal didn't know is that Binance is the price discovery venue for basically everything that we do. And like when you buy on Binance, you see FTX like slowly get armed up. And it's basically just mirroring the liquidity on Binance with a bunch of stale positions facilitated by Alameda. And so it just kind of furthers the idea that, you know, this was actually just like a prop shop trying to get a technology company valuation. Um, and and like, you know, my takeaway from all the bankruptcy filings filings and stuff is Sam rarely had a good directional sense of like what the state of his finances were, which implies that everything was so commingled and so just jumbled and like run by the seat of their pants that, you know, if you, if you think that the market, you know, if you think that you have a plus or minus 10% understanding of your finances, uh, but then the market goes down 90% and so do your assets, 
like that plus or minus 10% becomes the entire value of your customer's collateral liabilities. And so at the end of the day, like the fact that they didn't have an account, they literally had no accounting department is insane to me. Like you need to know where all, and we know where all of our dollars are at any given time. We can move them between places. We know the exact state of our finances. Like that's how a professional runs an organization. This is just like pure amateur hour. This is, this is what it comes down to. This is another subject that I think, you know, is worth discussing. Everyone is talking about, oh, well, like he was getting really close to the regulators and, and like, you know, they didn't do anything to protect us. Actually, I think that they did because they prevented FTX.com from entering the U.S. customer base. You know, that was, that was never going to be a viable option to get, you know, millions and millions of U.S. people onto this platform. You have FTX U.S. and, you know, the bankruptcy proceedings will, will determine what happens there. It is siloed away from both FTX.com, Alameda, and all the other acquisitions. So you would assume that there's higher chances of FTX customers getting their deposits back. But I, I think you know this is just a, a failure. This is not a failure of regulators. I, I think it's actually potentially a, a, a sign that you know there was some smoke and, and they assumed that there was fire. The, the other question that I wanted to pose to this broader group, which I've been kind of like rattling around in my head over the last week, um, looking at trying to get into the mental state of where, where Sam was at any point in time, <clears throat> which, which asset between FTX and Alameda, do you think he personally valued more? Alameda. hundred percent. hundred percent. Not even, cl- I, I and I think the reason why is like, it's really hard to even like in a simple sentence, describe what he was doing. It was kind of like what Jason was saying. It was like a prop shop that was like sucking in VC money via this inflated valuation that was also sucking in dollar-denominated debt via a bullshit token, and the way he laundered it was through Alameda. That's why it was so necessary, because the way he took all the money out and yeah. spent it, the laundering mechanism was Alameda, and that's why it was the most important thing to him. Precisely. I think FTX was a mechanism and sort of a, a necessary to have, but I think Alameda was his bank. Same. Yeah, that's what it. I said. Yeah. Exactly. And the loans from FTX to Alameda to Paper Crane, which he owns, Paper Crane, and the loans from Al, like, oh, it's it's just crazy. How could you? I just do not believe that. Like the, you're in, you're working FTX. What? Like you're just like moving stuff around, like hot and cold wallets. Like you don't notice coins are missing. You're working in Alameda. You you just keep taking big L's on trades. Like you just keep getting refilled with more money. Like. I, I don't believe that, you know, only three or four people knew about this. Maybe three or four people only facilitated the fraud. But like mathematically, uh, if I wake up and there's 100 million more in our trading accounts, I'm wondering where it came from. All right, everyone. Quick break from this episode to talk about our show's sponsors, Avalanche. Many of you know Avalanche as the fast, reliable and scalable layer one. Uh, Av- the folks at Avalanche have a really great message for those of you who are in the crypto industry right now, which is bear markets are for building. So while a bunch of our uh, friends over in CFI are, are kind of going through these struggles and travails, the folks at Avalanche have basically put their heads down and are shipping products that builders want. The latest solution, Elastic Subnets. Right. And just to expand on that, Avalanche is consistently upgrading all of their platforms, right? So on the platform side, you've got Elastic Subnets, you've got new VMs. On the infrastructure side of things, you've got Core, which Mike, I just, uh, I know you used that the other day. I was a bridge or. I was a bridge or. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so they're upgrading the infrastructure side with Core and Enclave. The chain has had like no downtime, super customizable for devs. Uh, yeah, if you're a builder, avax.network, uh, avax.network, great place to be. 
but do Yano and I as well. So you definitely go check him out, but click the link at the bottom of this episode. Click the link. Oh, we're not going to get any credit. Come on. Yeah, Give us click the, the link at the bottom. Right. Give us the credit. Exactly. So, yeah, All big right. thanks to Avalanche. Um, yeah, you, I mean, you, it, you just had a great experience with them the other day uh, on the user side of things. So go check them out, guys. Thank us later. Let's get back to the show. All right. I have a, I just, I wanted to flag this. Like, we got to eventually talk about this uh, Vox article that he gave. But, like, for those of you who haven't seen this, we'll link it again in the show notes. But for God only knows what reason, Sam gave a super weird DM interview to a reporter at Vox who, to her credit, did a great job covering this. And he said some pretty outlandish stuff. Like, everyone basically had their own, oh, my God, I can't believe he saw this. Actually, Vance, I think I saw you tweet out about this at first. I was like, is this... Like I couldn't, it took me like a full hour to even believe that it was real. But this, this is what to me was like the aha moment. So this is like, so I'm just, I'm reading the the part from the reporter here. So there was no point of like, quote, let's lend out customer deposits, quote, just various financial instruments that ended up adding up to that. And you didn't see how they add up to that. Sam. Yeah. Like, oh, FTX doesn't have a bank account. I guess people can just wire money to Alameda to get money on FTX, dot, dot, dot. Three years later, dot, dot, dot. Oh, fuck. It looks like people wired $8 billion to Alameda and that, oh, God, we basically forgot about the stub that corresponded to that so it was never delivered to FTX. I was kind of just looking at that being like, dude, did you just admit that the funds never even made it to, to FTX? I mean, this, I, I know everyone had their own little thing to pull up, point out from that, but this to me was the smoking gun. I mean, at the very least, that's wire fraud. But – did, did you guys not think that also? Like, I thought this was such an odd thing to admit. Um, the the big thing is that, like, the the words on this page, this is Sam's tone. This is how Sam actually thinks within his own head. Like, all the other, like, effective altruism, like, er, we're going to do. It's like, no, like, you're actually this guy. This is how you talk when the doors are closed, and, and this is who you actually are. And that, to me, was, you know, obviously one of the things that stood out. But, you know him saying fuck regulators him saying uh you know like the whole ethics thing was just a front you know him actually admitting to these crimes like he's clearly in a very frantic state you know our sources say that he's still in the bahamas but just pacing around the apartment that he has and he's like freaking the other residents out and the building is like trying to get him to stop pacing like that's where he is right now um and i think it's just like it's very conclusive that crimes were committed here. And if he doesn't get held accountable, I, I don't really know what to believe at that point. That's why I have the tinfoil hat on. I, uh, we're know, gonna get to the tinfoil hat. Guys, how is he not in jail? How, dude, how is it? Like, I can't be the only one thinking this, right? Like, where the are the announcements? Recent, the most recent account is that at least the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is preparing criminal charges. Well, you know, we'll see, right? But. If that goes through, I mean, that would happen over the next couple of days. Also, like, now it becomes abundantly clear that there was um, not just, like, errors of omission or, you know, he, he forgot about certain things or, like, oh, he got over his skis. Let's, let's portray him in the same way that the New York Times did in that Puff Piece article that they wrote. How stupid must you feel as the writer for the New York Times? I mean, this just makes you and the entire publication look like you don't do any diligence and you have a complete slant and you have a vested interest in per portraying facts in a certain way. But when you see this storyline come out and, and the, the narrative now that this is the real Sam and this is how he actually thinks and this is what he's literally saying to another reporter, it, this is the real one. And, and this is the one who had malice and intent. I, I don't get how he's not in jail right now. You, look at Bernie Madoff. 
the the day the feds found out that he had used client funds to cover fund obligations, that guy was in handcuffs. The the same day. I, don't I think he turned, I think he turned himself in. I think there's there's a lot of so. It's not like Sam's on the run. We know where the guy lives. I can tell you right now on a map where he is. Totally, totally. I, I actually had a conversation with our with um, you know people who are in the know about this. It is actually hard to get somebody, even if they are. If there is an extradition process and policy for that country even if like that is going on like this is a you know this is not a u.s company um even though they filed for bankruptcy court protection in delaware like there is some process to it all um versus like bernie madoff who is you know a few blocks down the street from the from the uh district attorney's office um so i i think there is something to it but but i think the days of sam being free are numbered one of my uh friend's dads bumped into him at the grocery store in albany in the bahamas i think two days ago He's just like you know buying some food because he's hungry. Dude. <laughs> I'm, t- I'm, I'm surprised he's eating uh, while he's jacked up on all those amphetamines. I um yeah, it turns, out, it turns out he doesn't have Parkinson's either. You know who would have thought? Uh, like you know he's just wearing fucking patches that give you you know just I have insane. I have a um I want to point something out about the New York Times article which just really surprised me. So I mean look so I want to share actually Austin Allred had a great tweet about this that I thought kind of summed it all up uh, pretty nicely. But basically, this is, you know, he's got up New York Times coverage of Coinbase after they had layoffs to FTX defrauding customers going bankrupt, disappearing with $10 billion worth of other people's money. This is a lot of media. Um, you know, media is unbiased and reports the facts, but they interject their editorial opinion in their parentheticals and the context that they choose to give in a particular story. So look at Coinbase rose to prominence as one of the first major cryptocurrency companies, a gateway to the chaotic world of digital assets for amateur investors. But as it has grown from plucky startup to publicly traded company, its status as an industry leader has been threatened by a series of missteps and a steep decline in the crypto markets over the next six months. Here's another one. But as Coinbase grew, projects started to feel overstaffed and the decision-making process slowed amid layers of bureaucracy. According to five people familiar with the company. Longtime employees were considered or concerned that new hires felt rudderless, one person said, and joked that you could tell the length of someone's tenure at Coinbase by the number of times the new recruits came asking them for help. Even the Super Bowl ad didn't nearly come together. As the game approached, Coinbase hadn't settled on an idea. Employees discussed the possibility of selling back the airtime. All right. What what are they really talking about here? Like, remove this language. These are minor uh, mess-ups that every company goes through, right? But the impression that you have when you read this is like, wow, this is a, a tangled organization, right? That that phrasing is very important. That is growing pains for any company of that size. Any comp- literally any company. Now, listen to the way, listen to the parenthetical, listen to the way this reporter contextualized this. Even as he kept hiring down, Mr. Bankman-Fried built an ambitious philanthropic or operation, invested in dozens of other crypto companies, bought stock in the trading firm Robinhood, donated to political campaigns, gave media interviews, and offered Elon Musk billions of dollars to help finance the mogul's Twitter takeover. Mr. Bankman-Fried said he wished he'd, quote, we'd bitten off a little less. The venture staff was probably not really worth it given the risk, the attention that it took, he said, referring to his investments in other companies. Perhaps Mr. Bankman-Fried's most ambitious aim was to shape crypto regulation in Washington, where he testified to Congress and met with regulators. What is the impression that you get from those words that that reporter chose to use it, it is uh it's more about your politics less about what actually happened if 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 the fraud had never unwound 
SBF, and, and like, it's very key to understand this, all of these people were rooting for SBF to win. You know, a global, well-educated, you know, effective altruism, very liberal, you know, like he was the, he was like patient zero for, okay, who's going to be the next guy to like, you know, beat the, beat the drum for the neoliberal uh, bandwagon. And, you know, like it just didn't work and they're having a hard time letting go. And I think that, you know, many people have told them that there's a chance that, you know, it might not be over, but like guys, you know, it's, it's in chapter 11 right now. Like Sam is like, oh, we're raising money. Raising money for what? I just don't get it. Even, even, even this morning, even this morning after all this has come out, the Washington Post came out with an article saying Sam was like on track to save the world from another pandemic. It was this morning. I'm like – yeah, I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't, I don't get it. I'm so confused. Okay, so, so, so let me turn this around then. You two, as co-founders of a news organization, what do you think? How do you view the dichotomy of reporting? How do you view the perspective and you know the choice of uh, inclusion of opinion into this? I think it's actually the media background that makes me think this is even weirder than other people are saying because. They're, they're sourcing. You're supposed to dual source things, right? It's very odd that even in like a puff piece interview about someone that you wouldn't get someone else to interject commentary on that thing, right? So the, the choice of word to not even include the allegations is a very odd choice from an editorial perspective. To not include another voice that would provide a contrary opinion is almost like that's like that's like bare minimum stuff. Uh, so I, I would just say I find I found it extremely odd. And I actually think our media background makes me think it's even weirder than most people are. They're just like, oh, it's weird that they covered it nicely. I think it was like irresponsible journalism. Let me ask you guys this. What did you make of Vox coming out with that puff piece and then that other reporter just like screenshotting her DMs and being like, no, this guy's actually, you know, a really bad guy. Because it felt like that was like infighting almost. That's not necessarily how I interpreted it. I I think there's a – look, I, I, I actually really believe in media. I like deeply believe in it. I think it can be – I think there are bad examples of it. But, you know, there's a whole conversation here to be had around like citizen journalism that I'm like relatively skeptical of. I think good journalism is, is really great and needed. Um, they're very, if you've ever talked to reporters, like the good ones are super concerned with like getting it right, almost to an annoying degree, right? They're like very nitpicky about the facts. And it's good because someone has to be, right? It's good to be like very forward looking and very optimistic, but you kind of need someone to be like, hey guys, like can we do like some basic fact checks? And that's what media is supposed to do. Uh, there was a little piece at the bottom, which I really appreciated of that Vox article, which was like, we checked with Sam in the morning hey, did we have a conversation last night or did you get hacked? To which he responded, no, that was literally me. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know, I, I kind of thought Vox killed it on that. I, I didn't necessarily get that sense of inviting. I think it was frankly, if you hadn't included the screenshots, it would have been unbelievable. I don't think anyone would have believed it. I saw the screenshots in myself and I have a pretty low opinion of the guy at this point, but like, I still couldn't believe that he would do that interview. Like, I think they needed to include the screenshots. Otherwise it, it just boggled the mind, frankly. Um, I don't know what to make of that. That's what, that's what, that's how I took it. I don't know, Yano, if you have any other opinions there. Yeah. Um, very weird. So I guess it's an unfolding situation. Um, I, you know, a lot of this stuff is like, 
you know, I, I think I'm, I'm very curious to see what happens when more facts come to light. Um, I think all of us have like a vested interest in the space. I would love to see justice done in, in whatever form that takes. So, um, I, I want to, unless you guys have any closing thoughts on this, I have a closing thought on the media side of things. I'm not going to like compare, you know, I, I think it was a really bright light for uh, like a bright week, two weeks for crypto media in general. Like you had a lot of things getting basically uncovered by like, all right. So first off, a lot of stuff, there were like on-chain sleuths that literally looked at the blockchain and uncovered crimes. It was amazing. Then that stuff would go to citizen journalists on like Twitter. Citizen journalism is interesting because like you can aggregate all this news and like it happens really quickly. The problem with that though is um, there's like half of it is rumor and half of it is true or probably like 90% is rumor, 10% is true. That's that's the problem with all the Twitter citizen journos. And that's where like, that's one of the areas where like crypto media, Blockworks, but also other publications, right? But all this Coindesk kicked off crushed with, it. with Coin, Coindesk. It. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Coindesk. Murdered Coindesk. it. Coindesk did an amazing job. Huge shout out to Ian Allison, like one of the best journalists in crypto. Um, like this all started with Ian Allison's piece. I think it was just a, the whole spectrum of media, starting with like the, the data side and like the on-chain stuff to the to the Twitter journalists. And then even after the fact, after a news story had broken, like podcasts, honestly, like like a lot of BlockWorks' shows and Laura Shin and, and Bankless, like did an amazing job of, of bringing folks on to actually explain the situation. And I just, I got really excited about like the impact that someone like BlockWorks makes on the industry and just like the impact that media and all the people, like, I feel like we came together as an industry to, to like figure out the facts here. And a lot of this shit wouldn't, wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for thousands of people on like working kind of around the clock. So I totally agree with that. Yeah. I, I mean, this is, this is, I think by far the biggest, biggest story in business this entire year by far. Yeah. yeah. By far. And, and then, sorry, the other side of this is then mainstream media just completely botched it. And I was like, Oh, yeah. completely, completely botched, it. botched it like like is any of the reporting about anything true like if they're covering wars half around halfway around the world like what are the chances that the information they're reporting is factual yeah. like it makes me question right. everything. that's what i was gonna say i mean yeah. it, it does it is uh it's damning in a lot of ways i agree um i i don't i don't know i don't have a good response because like yeah it's been really disheartening to watch how this has been covered <laughs> And like the main that's why people have such it's interesting actually i was on a call with um like a fashion executive weirdly yesterday and uh they were talking about how the meat uh like... sorry pray tell what uh <laughs> <laughs> what uh I, really sorry, can we boring... get some context around that or it's a really boring story is one of those calls that mike you always say i'm wasting my time by taking all these random ass calls but i just like taking them because i like meeting people um <laughs> totally had nothing to do with crypto and I probably was wasting time taking it. But uh, interesting guy, interesting guy. But he was talking about media, like the media and uh, journalism behind fashion. He's like, every, he's like New York Times, CNN, they all get it wrong. But there's these like B2B trade publications that get it right. And it makes me think that that exists in every single industry. He's like the only... Uh, media publication I trust is like the business of fashion. I think it's called went to the website. Cool, cool company. Sounds like they're crushing it. He's like, when the New York times writes about like a deal in the fashion space, they just literally get the facts wrong and then blow right past it. So I don't know. I'm, I'm long on like niche, like more like trade publications and like industry pubs. Like who could that refer I like to? That. You know, 
Who could that be referencing? This um, has been a 10 minute. It's been a heavy show up. All right, we got to move past the block work show. So I want to I, I want to move on to uh, the Genesis story because that was the other uh, implosion that sort of happened this weekend, this week. That was yesterday. Um, yeah, the the backstory of Genesis for those who don't like Genesis started as the uh, was the first OTC Bitcoin desk in 2013. Barry Silbert started them. They're now crypto's largest lending desk. Uh, their numbers were massive. Like if you look at their a snapshot of their numbers a year ago, 50 billion in loan originations, 12 and a half billion in active loans, 30 billion in spot volume traded, 20 billion in derivatives traded. Uh, and then basically three arrows happened and they started to blow up. So Genesis was the biggest creditor to three arrows. They lent them like two and a half billion dollars. Uh, Genesis filed like a $1.2 billion claim. DCG stepped in, assumed the claim. That left Genesis with no outstanding liabilities. Tied to three arrows. People were like, okay, it's all good. Then things continued to unravel. Uh, Genesis got hit super hard by Babel Finance. Babel Finance is kind of like a BlockFi, um, I think, in, in Asia. Um, so that's that was in June. Then in August, they laid off 20% of the team. Michael Morrow resigned or got asked to leave. I don't, I don't really know the deal there. Basically everyone I know at Genesis at that point in time in August, uh, started to basically leave. Why the downfall? So yesterday, Gen uh, Genesis announced that they were stopping withdrawals. Why that's so important is because they're basically the yield product for every C5 platform. And how that works is, um, you essentially give your, like, let's take Gemini. So Gemini, Gemini's earn product is powered by Genesis. So what happens is you give your, you give your crypto to Gemini. Gemini gives your crypto to Genesis. Genesis lends your crypto to a fund who thinks that they can make money using your money. The fund borrows from Genesis at like, I'm going to make up numbers here, 10%. Genesis passes on some of that yield to Gemini, let's say 8%, and then Gemini gives you 6%. So voila, now you have yield. This, this whole system only works if the counterparties that Genesis lent to can actually repay their borrow. If Genesis can't actually get their crypto back, they can't give the crypto back to Gemini or to any other crypto C5 platform, which means the C5 platform can't give you, the user, your crypto back. Um, so that, that's, that's one side of why it's really bad. And the other side is just like, if you are kind of a retail user, you probably, and you want to earn yield, you give it to like BlockFi or Gemini and you get like five or 6%. If you're an institution or just a crypto whale or like a family office and you want to earn yield, you, you can kind of skip the BlockFi, like the app process and just give it to Genesis. So a lot of family offices and crypto whales that I know, they basically just give their money to, to Genesis and earn X percentage on it. So the reason that Genesis halting withdrawals is so bad is they sit at the direct center of crypto's capital markets, right? They custody fund, they help institutions earn yield, and they are the yield product for C5 platforms. So that's why it's bad that they're halting withdrawals. Let me, let me explain how we think, or I think that they got into trouble. It starts with GBTC. Um, so GBTC, GBTC is a product that is created by Grayscale. Genesis is uh, a company that is also under the DCG umbrella with Grayscale. What that means for Genesis is that they are an affiliate trust party. What that means mechanically is that if I am an affiliate trust party and I have GBTC on my balance sheet, I can't go into the open market and sell it. And so, you know, that's an issue. And, and the bigger issue is that they were taking GBTC as collateral. And so the, the R loop works something like this. Suzu and Kyle roll up uh, with, uh, with uh, GBTC that they've created. They give it to Genesis. They take dollars against it. They buy BTC. They create GBTC. They give more GBTC to Genesis. 
you know, they do it over and over and over again, and, and then they're super levered, right? And if things go badly, Genesis can't sell that collateral. And so, like, that's the core issue. And, like, our understanding of Three Arrows was, like, they were traders. They would, like, punch, like, medium-sized tickets, whatever. But there was that one uh, day where they announced that they had, like, you know, 7% of the GBTC trust. And that was, like, the, okay, shit, like, Three Arrows has arrived. Like, they're actually way bigger than anybody thought. But it, nobody knew how they got there. I was going to jump in to point something out about an interview that Three Arrows gave a little while ago after all this came in, in Bloomberg. And what they're doubling down on, which was the only mistake that they made was that that they couldn't have accounted for is that they didn't know other people would follow them into the trade, which is like the, the funniest thing ever, because obviously, obviously, man, finance is like it's replete. It's like the, it's like one of the primary risks that you should be concerned with is a trade getting overcrowded. And I actually forgot about this until you just reminded me they gave an interview with the block stating how big their position was. They t- fucking told everyone. They like they levered this up, right? And and Genesis now has collateral that they literally cannot sell. Which is like, you know, the cardinal sin of lending. Like never take anything as collateral that you literally cannot have a liquid market for. Because if the markets blow up, then you're stuck with the collateral. And then you're just taking directional risk and hoping that it goes back off or trying to offload it to a different party that might make a market for you. So like that's the situation where I think they found themselves in right when Luna blew up, especially because you know, uh, three O's got liquidated, whatever, you know, the game's over for them. But at the end of the day, they're just sitting with a bunch of this GBTC collateral wondering what to do with it. And there's this, you know, potential mismatch in their assets and liabilities as well. And so that's when it got, I think, to a point where, you know, they realized that they needed to potentially raise money and, and Barry put in, I think it was like a, a $400 million, like, you know, note into them to kind of re-collateralize the company. Um, and now they've, you know, they lost another 175 in their derivatives business in FTX. They lost another like 10 or something in their lending business. And, and now the Wall Street Journal is just reporting, like, I don't know if this just came out, but they're trying to raise an emergency loan of $1 billion by Monday. And so you think about the process of, okay, like, you know, what are, what are you offering and what are, what are they getting in return? Are you selling, you know, a chunk of Genesis equity so that people can put money in, which will then go right back out the door to recollateralize customers and enable withdrawals? Like that doesn't seem like a very good business decision if I'm giving you cash to wind the business down. So like maybe that's not it. What about GBTC? They have a lot of that on their balance sheet. Well, they can't exactly sell it. You know, there's no there's no liquid market. So they need to go find somebody who's willing to take it off their hands and wait six months to potentially sell it because that's the rules of the trust. So like this is what happens when you take bad collateral and you're running a lending book. Um, and I think, you know, if you think about their major counterparties, it was the funds running this GBTC loop. That was a very big trade. And then miners, you know, like what's up with foundation, that big miner that they, you know, financed and did all that stuff with. Like details are starting to emerge of like what may or may not be on their balance sheet and who they may be exposed to. I really hope that they find a buyer, but you just need, you need to raise collateral very quickly. Um, or else you need to like the definition of insolvency is not having enough assets to meet your liabilities. Liabilities are very short-term customer withdrawals. If you do not have the assets for that, you either need to recollateralize the business or file for restructuring. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would say too is like another you know connection there is you can go back like this is like what we started to sniff around on initially. If you Google like Genesis Yield Partnership, all these part all these articles will pop up. And uh, like another one that they had was Luno. Luno's also, it's an exchange. It's in the family of DCG companies. Guess who provides the yield on that exchange? Genesis. It's like, 
And, and the other thing, not, I, not, I, not looking good for the DCG family right now, dude. Tough year for Barry. He he also plowed. I saw also a, also Foundry, right? I, I don't I don't know how Foundry's doing, but Bitcoin mining is. Yeah, sorry, Foundry. Yeah, yeah that, that was the miner yeah. I was talking. About. He also plowed. I'm pretty sure. I'm not sure if you listed this, fans, but about an aggregate. I got to check my numbers here, but I think it's like 750 million in buybacks of GBTC as well. If you remember, remember all those enormous buybacks that uh, that Barry announced, like, dude, I, I mean, it's well over a billion dollars he's personally injected into these portcos um, that he's. Wah, wah. <laughs> so, so like, there, there is kind of like this interesting strategic question of what you do at this point. Um, just like you know, if I'm Barry, this is how I think about it. I have two businesses. I have Genesis and I have uh, GBTC. Um, if I want to re-collateralize Genesis, I probably make the trust eligible for redemption, which means that I can then have actual BTC, which I can sell and re-collateralize Genesis. What that means is that you wind down GBTC, a business that prints cash, is on its potential path to you know, an ETF, and they're currently in litigation with the SEC as to like whether to make that ETF like you know uh, instantiated immediately or or whatever. And so like GBTC is, is probably the bigger of the two potential businesses, certainly the bigger cash cow and, and could get to bigger scale. And so I don't see him winding down the GBTC trust. I think it's just kind of like, what do you do with Genesis? And my hope is that a combination of asset sales and like selling loans is enough to at least get this to a point where customers can withdraw and then just wind it down. But, you know, this is like a, I wouldn't call it like a pillar of crypto lending. It's definitely an important, you know, capital markets desk, specifically the derivative side. And I don't know if that continues on, but I mean, we're just hoping that people get made whole at this point. And we don't want it to be in like a year, you know, and at 75 cents on the dollar, because that's not a good solution for anybody. The, the other thing, lastly, I don't know what happens, but like my instinct is like, what happens if crypto markets drop another 20%? It, like, are you selling client collateral? to like, you know, manage the whole? Or are you just leaving everything in whatever it's nominated in and just being like, you know, the bankruptcy or restructuring people can take this and, and work with it? Like that's that's the part that's less clear to me that has more risk. Cause like, if you're just indiscriminately selling large amounts of assets, that has an impact. Mm. Yeah, well said. I, um, it's been a tough year. A lot, a lot of people that looked pretty invincible about a year ago um, are coming under just an enormous amount of strain. Uh, and getting blown out. And, uh, you know, Barry, Barry Silbert was definitely not someone that I thought seemed vulnerable because he had these, you know, it's this array because you mentioned the two companies, Vince, he's got, or Vince, he's got, uh, you know, uh, uh, Genesis and uh, Grayscale, but he's also got Coindesk, right? He's got his media arm. He's got Foundry, his mining plays, got Luno, his exchange. It looked like this impenetrable array of cash flow generating companies, but... Honestly, it looked like the weak link in the chain was Genesis. Um, and I guess, well, I, and I guess actually Grayscale as well. Um, but it sounds like, you know, we, there are a couple of reports out. You can, you can see for yourself, uh, you know, there's, it seems like there's a, a bidding war going on around Genesis's loan book. It looks like he might end up raising that capital, maybe not at the terms that he would ultimately want. Um, who, who, uh, who do you think ends up buying them? The, <laughs> Michael and I were just talking about, like, Everyone who was big enough is now either dead or like smaller, um, or, or doesn't so want to play in the U.S. Like, regulation space, or can't right play in the U.S. regulation. Like CZ's not buying Genesis. Um, I also doubt that CZ's buying Voyager. It just feels like the regulatory stuff is just too complex. But I think we're looking at like a tradfi rescue package. Unfortunately, I think so too. Because um, the like you know 
if we bail each other out, that's one thing. If people get liquidated, that's another. But like, if we're asking for help from TradFi, that just looks super embarrassing, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, this is centralized. I, I think if we're if if you're batch stopping like that's fair, that's fair. If you're batch stopping a bunch of loans with like a Goldman, J.P. Morgan, Credit Suisse type program, maybe not CS actually. Um, but if you're if you're batch stopping it there, I, I think that that actually lends credibility. I, I don't think it necessarily is a stain. Um, and frankly, like what they're going to look at is just like these. This is a loan book. I'm buying it at 80, 85 cents on the dollar, expecting that I'll be able to recoup, you know, half the loans or three quarters of the loans, whatever, whatever the math ends up being. Like they will get a pretty solid return on this, and I think that's how anybody would evaluate it. Maybe it's also just like hedge funds that want to step in and help. Um, so I, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, Monday is coming up rapidly, quickly. Yeah. Um, what do you guys think? You know, just in general. Like the one angle that we haven't really touched on is uh, is policy, the policy implications of all the. Especially oh, wait, can I have one? Can I ask one more question, just based on the Genesis thing? What happens if they don't get it done, a deal done by Monday? Who, like, who else is impacted here? I mean, definition of insolvency is not enough assets to meet your liabilities. If that is the case, I think you are compelled to file for some sort of restructuring. Um, in terms of what happens from there, like if you have assets, if you have, you know, uh, if you're lending out Bitcoin on Genesis, like you either and you don't have access to it anymore, like you need to either recreate that position or recreate a hedge or, or recreate whatever you have going on. But my sense is that once people had their shit locked up, it was kind of like they did whatever they needed to do within the first 24 hours like that. That's certainly like you know, our plan, if that ever happens to us is like, you know, figured out quickly. Um, I doubt people are waiting around to see if they like just like open up withdrawals, because I don't think that's on the table at this point. I mean, actually, I can maybe share like, the, first of all, I want to shout out Blockchain Association. Like, I just think the I mean, they occasionally get shouted out on Twitter, Coin Center, Blockchain Association. These guys are literally putting the entire industry on their backs in a place where it matters an enormous amount, where, like, look, I don't necessarily want to it's, it's not always the most rewarding, right, uh, thing to be like kind of in the thick of it politically, but like someone has to represent the interests of crypto and those guys do a really good job. Um, so I, I actually, we host a bunch of events. Uh, like I went down to their event this week. It was one of the best events I've ever attended. It was phenomenal. Um, like really solid content, great array of people speaking, well-organized. Uh, you know, the mood on the ground was kind of more optimistic than I would have thought. Um, and you know, there are a couple of different perspectives. Obviously, there's some short-term fallout that's going to happen here. And there's some questioning just in terms of, yeah, I mean, some of the, I think, public policymakers that align themselves as being pro-crypto, it's anyone's guess, right, if they end up changing their mind or not. But largely, the DCCPA uh, bill was kind of seen as Sam's bill. So oddly enough, him blowing up and being kind of toxic and untouchable in Washington might have actually helped preclude that bill from getting passed. Um, you know, I would keep in mind the brain of a five-year-old. I'm not, I, I'm not an expert on plot. These, these are just what I picked up basically from the discussions. Uh, so I don't think we're out of the woods yet, but basically, you know, the midterms didn't actually shake out horribly from a crypto perspective. It doesn't look like DCCPA is going to get passed. There are alternative bills that are more friendly uh, to the industry. It wasn't all doom and gloom, is what I will what I'll definitely say. So, I I believe that too. I like I think that we are in a much more positive place than we were a month ago from a regulatory standpoint, which seems bizarre, but it is the case. There's a lot of externalities from Sam blowing up. 
one of which being everyone's going to be super on the nose about who's putting what legislation into what and why, what are the differences between CFI and DeFi. Everyone knows now that CFI is the one that runs away with your money. Um, like, there's a lot of positive things coming out of this. I just think it's going to take, you know, the new Congress just a little time to get its, its arms wrapped around it. At some point, we're going to get legislation. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's tending in a more positive potential way. I would also say that that's going to happen in 2023 with like 75, 80% chance. So, side note, we should do a little predictions episode at yeah. some point for 2023. That'd be a good idea. You know, I, let's, let's see what we think. You got to do it. You got to bring the tinfoil hat because I want some outlandish predictions, <laughs> right? I didn't have enough time to make a, an antenna, but I'll have it for the next one. Um, all right. Can we, can we actually like maybe even – I would love to get your guys' thought. I've started to see a couple Chris, – I'm just – Chris Berninski, who I love, uh, great guy. Um, he started to call out what I've kind of also started to like maybe quietly, semi-optimistically start to think, which is – this is like record negative sentiment, right? I mean, even if you've been in crypto for a while, it's, I mean, the way people are talking, it's like pretty glum and bad out there, but prices have not reacted, frankly, horrendously. Um, and when you start to see like sentiment not line up with price action, you're kind of like, are we nearing a bot? Okay, so ask yourself a question, take your, your understanding of price over the last nine months, and just run the tape of everything that's happened in 2022 and ask yourself with like intellectual honesty, where do you predict Bitcoin and ETH would be right now, having seen Luna, Three Arrows, Celsius, and now FTX, Sam, Alameda blow up? I mean, I, I would have said with pretty high likelihood, probably underneath three or $400 for ETH mm. and, and probably like underneath 10K for Bitcoin. Um, like no, no questions asked, right? I mean, the, the strength of the industry and, and seeing where the market is right now, I think, to Mike, to your point, like it, it, it is a testament to the things that are working and the things that are not working are, are getting you know, figured out and blown up. But the things that are working, I think, are, are going to be so much stronger for it. And I, I kind of tend to agree with Chris. I mean, it feels like sentiment is so bad that usually that means that we're starting to get to a point of turnaround. What do you think ETH bottoms at? The cycle. Let, let, let me do the compliance folks at Framework uh, a, a favor here. This <laughs> <laughs> is not financial me. advice. Uh, <laughs> none of this should be as investment uh, advice either. Um, I don't even know if you guys can touch that uh, with, with the ten foot pole. You have any predictions? Yeah. Nope. I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I've, I'm not also small. I'm just going to sound like we're feeling positive. We're feeling positive. We're feeling about positive. Yeah, Let's I kind of think so too. We're feeling yeah. positive. I just read a Jason Choi thread that said we're going to be in a 10-year bear market. Um, I think that's absurd. Yeah. That's <laughs> actually. <laughs> I don't know if you guys. I honestly think it's engagement farming. Like, love Jason, but like, you know, I see, I yeah. see what you're doing. I um, I saw this got lost amid the noise of everything. Citron Research uh, shorted. ETH. I don't know if you guys saw that. And I kind of love seeing that. I was like, all right, like it's all these things. Like, you know, people are talking about depressions in the macro world. People are talking about 10 year bear markets. All the big short sellers are going short when it's already 90% down. Kind of like, could this keep is, getting worse. Might be like this it's for a so year. Bad. Yeah. Well, let, let's, let me phrase the question another way. Markets are based on expectation right? They're not based on necessarily what's happening. 
what could happen that would like blow all of this news out of the water? What is the bad news left outside that would like really surprise to the downside? Or, or let me put it, phrase it another way. Is the market more sensitive to downside surprises or upside surprises at this stage? Upside. And, and the market is driven by two things. One is expectations for looking, but current, it's also influenced by the current, which is positioning. Like what do you, what do people expect to happen? Great depression. How are people positioned? Extremely short or not in crypto or lost interest. And so like anything that moves that dial is going to be really positive. And like the expectations changing will change positioning in the current day. And I don't know, the time to be bearish was a year ago. Like if you were bearish a year ago, nobody wanted to talk to you. Everyone thought you were dumb. Turned out you were brilliant. Everyone wants to be bearish at the bottom, super bullish at the top. That's just like human psychology in nature. You need to lean against the wind at some point or else you're just going to be running with the herd the entire time, which is like generally not that good of a strategy. Funny to hear you say such wise things with that tinfoil hat on your head. <laughs> That's how he's able to say such wise things. <laughs> yeah, because the radio waves aren't getting in there. Yeah, he's not, he's not oh. getting hit by the Yeah, exactly. I, I've got a – can we actually just do – we talked about this a little bit, but uh, if there's one thing that I hope we can influence, can we just put out – look, there are certain people – in this space that got blown out before uh, SBF and they're trying to like mount a comeback because it seems like the logic is, oh yeah, we like did criminal stuff and like defrauded people, but it was way less than ultimately this enormous uh, criminal fraudulent activity. So like, is it, was it really that bad? Like give us a second shot. And I just don't look, we're not going to progress as an industry if we keep looking up to these people. Um, it's just, I, I just really don't think that, Look, there's a redemption arc as a human for these people. I don't believe you should like punish someone and like there's no redemption, but there's no – not in this industry, not with our money. It's I, – I just – I reject it. This is me Listen, Martin Strelly isn't back in the pharmaceuticals business anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's just on – he's just on up only. <laughs> so so I, I – really, yeah, you should – come on, guys. So I, I do, I, I totally agree with you. People who have defrauded others, uh, who have done things that are shitty, like we should not let back into the industry. I like, I also don't like, uh, like comment or retweet or like that stuff out of respect for, and there are victims. Uh, and like, you know, people in my DMs who they stole from saying, you know, like I'm thinking about logging off from Twitter for my mental health because like I can't, I just can't stand to see them go through this potential redemption arc. Like that's who I'm trying to keep in mind when I see, Stu like tweeting like kind of funny stuff and I'm like I, I just can't do it um, and so there's there's that we should not let those people kind of back in there is also like a power ranking of villains from this season um, SBF is number one I think I would I would probably put you know three hours and Luna tied for number two but there is a gap um, there's a million creditors to FTX they stole 10 billion dollars um, like that's a very serious problem I don't know what the exact three arrows Delta or whole is but um, you know, like there is, uh, Sam is the worst. That's basically my point. You know, it is, I thought that was really well said. It's yeah. There are people that lost, um, life savings, man. They lost life savings. They lost, uh, four years of work and, uh, grinding and profits. And like, I don't know, people in this industry work super hard, you know, like a lot of people work weekends and took big risks and to have all that, you know, jacked from you, not even necessarily like the, a lot of people that got hit hardest is, if you had an investment strategy, which required you to have capital stored on multiple exchanges, you know, and maybe you just kind of didn't like it, but like a lot of the systematic trading guys, the market neutral, they got smoked 
Um, and it wasn't even necessarily a huge fault of theirs. It was just like they had to do that for their particular strategy. So it's, uh, I think that's the thing to keep in mind, right? Like as, as a, uh, as an exercise, it would be very, I went back and listened to some early, uh, I don't mean to pay, I actually love up only as a show. Like I'm huge, huge fan of it, but I did go back and listen to some up only podcasts from like the beginning of 2021. Everyone should do that. Just not even necessarily up only just like some crypto podcasts. Like listen to what people were saying in 2021, take a mental note of how differently you think about it now versus how differently you were thinking about it when that was going on. And just remember that because it was like helpful for me to be like, wow, I was listening to this and taking it seriously at the time. And, uh, you just have to prefer yeah. wealth. Remember yeah. that a reasonably sized house. You could just acquire yeah. wealth. By referring it. Yeah. Reasonably, reasonably sized. One reasonably sized house. Yeah. It's just uh, a couple of liquidations and then it's up only. Up only. Yeah. Yeah. Like the super cycle. Yeah. Um, do you guys have a, a quick sentiment check on, I mean, uh, just what's going on in like outside of crypto and like web two. I have a couple friends at, I, I have one friend who spoke to me who works at a, let's call it a very large, very successful kind of web two platform. And she was like, it is all hands on deck. First of all, there was a big rift that hasn't necessarily been announced yet. Everyone was told they have to be in an office uh, within three days. They had to do pitches in front of some, at, at most a hundred people. They got live critiqued. They were like, we have quiet quitters. This is not happening anymore. I was like, I mean, I, it, and like we, you know, since we've talked about this last, I think an Amazon announced they were letting 10,000 people go. Everyone's missing their earnings. I mean, can you guys give us like an update on web two land and what's going on over there or, or what's up? Yeah. You think it's bleak for crypto? Oh man, <laughs> it's bleak for them. Uh, it's pretty brutal right now. I think most of the people that I know who, you know, <clears throat> across Dropbox and Snap, the ones that, you know, the places that I worked, but then also just a ton of friends who have moved on to other, you know, large technology platforms, as you said. Um, it's it's like, not only is it just going to be like a difficult place to work for the for the next couple of years, um, it's the, it, I think the biggest thing is everybody's gotten so used to the cushy lifestyle that you rip that away and it's like you literally took away all their toys. And, and it's that about face uh, and change that most people are still trying to deal with. I have a couple of friends who are like, this is great. This is awesome. This is what we need to have. And so I, I think the like tried and true are going to actually really enjoy it. But there's just so many people who have been riding high and like underneath the radar um, that it's just not going to be uh, pleasant for a lot of people. But I think ultimately this is a good thing. The, the other interesting fact, um, you know, I don't know which podcast, but I was listening to a podcast recently about how like, oh, like, you know, all the tech layoffs, it's really going to affect the economy. Like, no, there, there's a Fed board of, uh, board observer or whoever they are um, who said if every single person who works at a major internet publishing, content, broadcast, or search engine was to get laid off tomorrow, every single one of them, 100% riff, it would affect unemployment rate by adding 30 basis points to the unemployment. It's like... This is like a microcosm of the economy from an economic perspective, uh, from an employment perspective, but obviously a huge revenue generator for, for the rest of the economy. So I, I think this is going to be a great, interesting experiment in, you know, how lean can you run these businesses? How profitable can they get? They're like the, the vibe that I get is consistent with Michael, but it's like there are no tailwinds for these businesses that they haven't already capitalized on. 
Like we are riding the biggest tailwind in crypto into the biggest market and we haven't even begun to capture that. And so like, you know, we have this idea of like, yeah, we fucked up in 2021. Sorry, we had to liquidate everyone in 2022, but like we paid for our sins. We're going, you know, to the moon eventually. Like there is like a lot of faith. There's a lot of reason. There's a lot of, you know, optimism in the industry for, for good rationale. Web two, it's like, you know, the products are the products. Like we've probably hit our terminal growth rate. You know, Netflix has been stuck at like 100 million US customers. It's gone down like over the past three years. Like there is that, there's, there's not like the teleportation into like a new total addressable market that's gonna save them. Um, and so, yeah, it's more of like a, a management business now of like how lean can well, you run them to my And, and so just to double click into that point, uh, there, there's actually two really, really important components. Number one, is this is what happens with all major industries throughout capitalism. You get to a point where you grow to sort of your max capacity, and then you ultimately end up having operational, uh, provide operational efficiency to continue to scale because you need to get highly profitable. And, and so like that, you know, growth into deep value is a natural progression. The other element here, which I think is really important, which will be really interesting to see, the growth of all of these tech platforms, if you look at every single one of them, maybe maybe absent Apple, every single one of and, and actually well, you could argue Netflix, but that's you know a different type of acquisition strategy. Every single one of these businesses, every single one of these platforms has grown through acquisition strategy over the last 20 years. You know, you've got YouTube, you've got Instagram, um, you've got all of the major new platforms that are providing these businesses with growth were not things that were created inside the four walls. Well, what has been signaled at least to the broader uh, economy is that acquisition strategy is not going to be something that is going to be supported by regulators going forward. And so that off the table really actually hurts them even more because it's not like you can just go and say, oh, I'm going to go off and like buy this new app, buy this new concept, buy this new thing. You really have to sit there and build it yourselves. And that I think is going to be really, really hard for a bunch of, you know, complacent tech workers that have been riding high for the last 20 years. And I don't think they're going to be able to do the hard work to be able to get there. And so I think the only thing, you know, that you can possibly do from a corporate strategy perspective at this point is operational excellence to get to profitability and then cash flow businesses. I, I think it, it's very interesting to see as an experiment, what's going to happen. Elon just fired half of Twitter. So like, let's see what happens, right? I mean, you know, on the one hand, uh, maybe, It'll, maybe it'll crash and burn and it's a lot more difficult than he thought. Or maybe this thing just starts spewing cash because there was an enormous amount of wasted human capital that they didn't really need on the platform. And honestly, the way, maybe the one thing that I would, I would tweak, and actually I'm, I'm agreeing with you, Vance, on, on your point. There's no new market they can teleport into. But maybe that industry has just reached the next phase of its life cycle from like growth into harvesting the assets that they've built. There are a lot of great assets in the tech industry, and now it's time for them to just start spitting off cash flow. And maybe some of those things end up getting more commoditized, but I don't think it necessarily means their share price has to, you know, get smoked. I mean, I, I think this, they're natural just natural progression. Yeah, it's just the natural progression. I think. Um, so, all right, guys, I think that's about all the time we have. I think we did this. We did this justice. Um, yeah, this was this was a good one. <laughs> I, I appreciated it. Van, Vance, you, Vance, you, you can you zoom in on the uh, on the tinfoil. Yeah. <laughs> no holes. An impressive no, tinfoil cap. No. Also. Yeah, like pretty well constructed. Yeah. Man. Yeah, yeah. My 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 girlfriend helped me out. You know, no big deal. Uh, God, I wish I would. Just trying to stay safe. You know, I not wish get I could have been a fly on the wall for that.
Like, babe, I need a tinfoil hat for my podcast that I'm recording. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like, oh, God. Uh, all right, fellas. This was a fun one. Uh, we'll see you here next week. Cheers, guys. See you. Later.